Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. In case you use one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 869. And it's been a while now since we started this series. And so in case you haven't been with us, or to refresh your memory, if you have been, the Gospel of Luke as a story is a carefully researched account of the life and ministry of Jesus that a man named Luke wrote for his friend who was named Theophilus. And in it, Luke is demonstrating that all of God's Old Testament promises of salvation find their fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we continue our journey through the story this morning, I want to start off by asking you a question. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Have you ever been accused of, of, of doing something that you didn't do or, or of not doing something that you did do? And when I was a, a sophomore in high school, I had the misfortune of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I actually had a teacher confront me in the middle of the hallway and accuse me of, of knocking all of the books in her classroom off the shelf and onto the floor in her room. And I, I tried to calmly explain that I had not, in fact, done that. And, and she got in my face and she narrowed her eyes and she said, I don't believe you. Now, my parents had always taught and enforced me being respectful to, to people in authority, but 15-year-old Travis and this lady were about to have words at this moment because she was trying to get me in trouble for something that I had not done, and she was calling me a liar in the process. Right? So, so being falsely accused provokes a, a deep sense of, of indignation way down deep inside that can be difficult to control. Well, this morning, we're going to see how Jesus handled being falsely accused as he defends the spiritual integrity of his ministry, and as he gives us some insight into the operations of the demonic. And so we're in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 14. Luke writes, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so last week we read about the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus taught us what we should pray and how we should pray it. And now as we pick up again in verse 14, Luke moves on to tell us about an occasion where Jesus cast out a demon that had made the man he possessed mute. He was, he was unable to speak. And we see that once the demon has been driven out, the man begins to talk. And as he talks, the crowd, who, who knows that this man has been unable to speak for however long, is amazed. They marvel. Well, not everybody. Right? In verse 15, we see that some people in the crowd take the opportunity to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, who they refer to as the prince of demons. This is just another name for Satan. And so in other words, they are saying that Jesus gets his miraculous abilities 
from Satan, as if they're in a partnership of some kind. And then in verse 16, we see that other people, like the lawyer back in chapter 10, are seeking to test Jesus. Right? They're, they're trying to challenge him in an effort to discredit him in some way. And, and these people keep demanding that he show them a sign from heaven. Right? They, say, they say, do something that proves you are who you say you are. As if casting a demon out is not a sign enough, right? Delivering someone out of demonic oppression. Now, notice that nobody is questioning the fact that Jesus has performed a miracle here. Right? Everybody agrees on that. There's, there's no denying that that's what happened. But some people are still refusing to submit themselves to him and are desperately looking for an excuse in the process. And this serves as just another reminder to us that while some people will insist that they would believe if only they saw a miracle, the reality is that that's not necessarily true. Because many people did see Jesus' miracles during his life, and yet they chose to dig in their heels in unbelief. You see, the, the reality is that Jesus and his message are either inherently compelling to us, or they aren't. And if they're not, then no amount of miracles would convince us otherwise. Now, before we move on, it's also worth mentioning the seriousness of what is happening here. In, in other parallel uh, accounts in Matthew and then later on in Luke, this kind of accusation is what Jesus defines as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which he defines as an unforgivable sin. You see, to describe the work of the Holy Spirit as being the work of Satan is to misrepresent intentionally the very character of God. To do this is, is slander of the highest order and, and something that carries eternal consequences. We're going to see more about that when we get to chapter 12. But for now, Jesus has been falsely accused of working for Satan. And we're going to see how he responds as we pick up again, beginning in verse 17. It says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so beginning in verse 17, Jesus addresses the people who are falsely accusing him. And he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a, and a divided household falls. Now a lot of people who hear that statement associate it with a speech by Abraham Lincoln before the, the Civil War started. But the truth is that Lincoln was actually quoting from Jesus here. Jesus said it first. But, but of course, whether it was Lincoln or Jesus, the point stands, right? The, 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 if people uh, who are, are in a same group or organization uh, begin to divide and, and fight amongst themselves, that will undermine 
the stability and success of, of any kingdom or organization, right? Whether it's a country or a sports team or a church, whatever. If the people involved stop working together and begin fighting amongst each other, they're doomed to fail, right? You can't accomplish anything that way. And in some cases, the, the, the results can be disastrous, right? And Jesus' point here is simple, as we see in verse 18, Right, if he is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that would mean that Satan is actively working against his own purposes of terrorizing, tormenting, and destroying God's creation. And that doesn't make any sense at all. It's a ridiculous thing to claim. And then in verse 19, Jesus takes things from a different angle when he asks the crowd, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Right, and here Jesus turns the accusation around and he points the finger back at those who are accusing him in some way. You may remember back at the end of chapter 9 that, that the apostles had come across a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they had tried to stop him because he wasn't one of them. Right, and historically, we know that there were other exorcists who were active at this particular time, although we don't know anything else about them. But whoever uh, they are, and, and however many there were, Jesus describes them here as your sons. And that expression uh, describes these people as, as those who are approved and affirmed by this crowd. Right? Again, wh whoever they were and, and however many there were, the point is that none of those people are being accused by the crowd of casting out demons by the power of Satan. They're only accusing Jesus of doing that. Right, this, this reveals an insincerity among these false accusers. It's not that they really believe that Jesus' power is satanic in nature. This is just a convenient excuse for them to throw out in an effort to discredit him and to justify their unbelief. But consequently, Jesus warns that these other exorcists will stand as judges over these people, although it's not entirely clear if this is in reference to a, a temporal judgment or eternal judgment. And so just to summarize, it's logically impossible for Jesus to be empowered by Satan. And, and in reality, we see that the crowd doesn't truly believe that he is to begin with. But then where does that leave us? If that's not the case, what then? Well, in verse 20, Jesus draws the inescapable conclusion when he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so there, there's two parts to this statement that we need to uh, spend some time on just briefly. And the first is the phrase, the finger of God. Now, obviously, in context, the finger of God uh, means being empowered by God in contrast to being empowered by Satan. Uh, but, but the phrase itself points us back to the Exodus. And so you may recall that Moses shows up on the scene in Egypt, and he demands that Pharaoh release his people. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. And so from that point, Moses begins to perform a, a number of different signs and miracles that turn up the intensity in order to reinforce his message. Right, unfortunately, the magicians of Egypt are able to copy and, and counterfeit his, his miracles, at least up to a point. You see, the, the miracles keep ramping up in intensity until the point where the magicians can't reproduce them, and they have to admit to Pharaoh that what, what's happening here is being done by the finger of God, right? a power that they can't match 
and which eventually causes Pharaoh to submit. And now here, Jesus applies that same phrase to himself. Now, we've already seen that Luke has portrayed the mission of Jesus as a new exodus, a new and greater exodus, right? Just as God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt under the old covenant, so now God is is delivering his people out of slavery to sin and death through Jesus. And what we see here is that the miracles of Jesus' ministry correspond to the, the miracles and the plagues that Moses performed as he freed his people from Egypt. Right? And all of this is to say that if Jesus is not empowered by Satan, then he must be empowered by God. And if he's empowered by God, then that means that the kingdom of God has come in and through him, and now you have a decision to make. Right? Are you going to submit yourself to Jesus, or are you going to miss out on the salvation that he has come to bring? Now, Maybe Jesus paused here for a moment to allow that to sink in, but not for too long, because in verse 21, he goes on to explain what's really happening through his ministry, as he he uses the imagery of kingdoms at war. You see, he refers to a strong man, a king, who, who has his palace, and it's full of soldiers and weapons that provide security for his kingdom, and everything's good until another king comes along who is stronger than him. He has more soldiers and more weapons. And and this king chooses to invade and conquers the kingdom. And he disarms the first king. And he takes all of his possessions as his own treasure. And the point is that this is what is happening through Jesus' ministry. Satan is strong. Give give him his, his due. Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. And in his ministry, the kingdom of God is invading and conquering the kingdom of darkness. And so in verse 23, Jesus lays it all on the line and he warns, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so Jesus is drawing a line in the sand here. There is a spiritual war going on and every single person has to make a choice. There's no such thing as neutral here. You are either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. But in addition to that, once more, he's inviting the people to recognize what God is doing through him. You see, in the exile, God had scattered his people throughout all of the nations of the world in, in judgment. Right? But the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, all spoke of the hope that one day God would once again gather his people back to himself through the Messiah. And Jesus indicates that that's what's happening right now through him. All right, Jesus is the Messiah who has come to gather God's people. All of our hopes for salvation rest on him. Now Jesus will go on to give some more insight into the operation of the demonic as we pick up one last time beginning in verse 24. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. 
and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And so picking up in verse 24, Jesus gives some insight into how demons operate. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And so when a, when a demon has been cast out of someone, it goes out into the desert looking for something else to inhabit. And the way that Jesus describes demons here makes them sound a lot like parasites, right? Like they, they prefer to have something to indwell and inhabit. But since there aren't usually a lot of living things out in the desert, the demon doesn't find anything to inhabit. And so it decides instead to go back to the person it previously possessed. In verse 25, Jesus describes the previous person as, as the house, and he, and he describes it as having been swept and put in order. Right? The demon was, was cast out, which can be compared to, to cleaning up a room and, and reorganizing it after it had been messy. However, while the room has been cleaned, if there's nothing else living there, then it remains available. And so Jesus says that the demon goes and finds seven other demons that they are even worse than it is. And together they all move in like roommates and repossess the person. And Jesus indicates at the end of verse 26 that the last state of that person is much worse than the first. Right, and in context, the point seems to be that, that just because someone has been delivered from demonic oppression doesn't automatically mean that they are saved. Right, there, there's still a response that is required to the gospel to receive the Holy Spirit who will then indwell them and protect them from further demonic activity. And so to fail to do so, right, to, to encounter Jesus in a real way, but then still reject him, places a person vulnerable to a spiritual condition that is critically serious. And then we see while Jesus is still speaking, a woman calls out from the crowd and pronounces a blessing on his mother, Mary, which is actually a way of complimenting Jesus. You see, in the ancient world, children were, were believed to be either a source of honor or shame for their parents. And so because Jesus is so great, this woman pronounces a blessing on Mary. Right, but in verse 28, Jesus pushes back on this somewhat. And he declares that, that rather, that the ones who are truly blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, meaning that they receive and obey it. Right, and again, the implication is that those who are listening to him need to respond to his message by embracing it for themselves, believing it. Right, if Jesus really is who he says he is, then there is nothing in the world that is more important than responding to him correctly. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus defends the spiritual integrity of his ministry against false accusation. And he also gives us some insight into the operations of the demonic. And what we see is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come to conquer the kingdom of God. Of darkness. Right, the reality is that there has been a spiritual war raging ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Right, but Jesus' ministry is like D-Day. 
Right? When, when, when the kingdom of God invades and, and begins to turn the tide of the war once and for all. Right? Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has defeated Satan and his army. And so some of you may remember from our study through Colossians that in chapter 2, Paul refers to, to the demonic powers of the universe. And he says that, that God in our salvation has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. You see, the, the, the war has been effectively won. And now in the Great Commission, the church has been called to go and make disciples of all nations in the final skirmishes of battle until Jesus comes back to make all things new once and for all and to bring his saving work to completion. Right? And in that process of fulfilling the Great Commission, we are plundering Satan's kingdom. We are releasing captives one by one through the power of the gospel and God's word. And in light of this, I want to close this morning by asking you a couple of questions. First of all, do you realize that we are in the middle of a war? Right? Do you realize that we are in the middle of of war. To, to be fair, it's an invisible war, right? Nobody's getting shot. There are no buildings that are being destroyed, but I'm telling you it's more real than what's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. And in this war, eternity is at stake for everyone involved. The kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of darkness. And local churches are outposts of the kingdom all around the world. Right, the Great Commission gives us our marching orders in this war. Right, as, as we share the gospel and meet with people for discipleship, we are at war. Right, as we gather together here every single week for fellowship and for worship and encouragement and, and listening to God's word and prayer, we are at war. As we go into VBS this week, we are at war. And this is why it is so important for our members and why we expect our members to be actively involved in the ministries of our church. Right? We can't afford to have people on the sideline any more than, a, than an army can afford to have people daydreaming in the middle of a battle. We're at war. And this is why we partner with other churches and ministries for missions and church planting and Bible translation and disaster relief all around the world. This war is too big for just us. Right? And so we have to work together. Right? This is a fundamental reality of our existence, and yet so often we go through life distracted by, by the things that are going on around us and not paying attention to the fact that we are in the middle of battle. And so I want us to be reminded of that this morning. Church, we are at war. So I challenge you to live accordingly. But then secondly, before we close, I want to make sure to ask, do you know which kingdom you're in? Do you know which kingdom you belong to? You see, there's only two options. And by nature, every single one of us belongs to the kingdom of darkness. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they threw the entire human race into rebellion against God. And by nature, we rebel against our creator and we rightly deserve to receive his judgment for spiritual treason which is what sin is. But the good news is that the Lord is merciful and that Jesus has come to redeem us through his life, death, and resurrection. And if you will understand and respond to this good news, 
then you can be forgiven of your sin and welcomed back into the kingdom of God. Right? And, and not just as a refugee, but as we talked about last week, as an adopted son or daughter of the king. This is the good news that we as the church have to share with the world. And so this morning, if you recognize Jesus for who he is, if you hear his word, then I invite you to respond by going all in for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.